Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletop from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Washington, D.C. is Nathan Mendelson. Nathan is an associate at Wilson, Cincinnati, Goodrich, and Rosati, and the co-author of the chapter Federal Antitrust Law Risks 2022 in the latest version of the Complete Compliance and Ethics Manual. First, Nathan, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Happy to be here, Adam. Happy to have you and learn more about the seemingly never-ending complexities of antitrust law. Um, and, and let's start with that idea. You know, antitrust is more than two competitors agreeing to set pricing. Can you give us an overview of the range of potential violations? Sure. So at first, as you alluded to, there are agreements that raise antitrust issues. In general, they're analyzed under one of two regimes. First is what is called per se illegal, where the conduct is uh, has no redeeming value generally. Um, these are per se conduct is normally the only one that is criminally prosecuted. And I would like to note that individuals and companies can be criminally charged for per se violations. So as a recent example, the CEO of Bumblebee, the tuna company, was actually sentenced to three years in prison for agreeing on pricing in the past few years. Um, other examples of per se conduct would include, in addition to agreeing on price, um, what are called market allocation, so that could be not competing in a certain geographic region or not competing for certain customers, um, or also bid rigging is a very common example. Conduct that's not per se may be analyzed under what's called the rule of reason, where courts or enforcers will weigh the pro-competitive benefits of an agreement. So a lot of those are things like joint ventures, um, agreeing on standards for product lines, for example, agreements on political lobbying comes up a lot. Um, and one example that's actually really common is agreements for vertical restraints, which are agreements between your suppliers or purchasers. Um, and most of those tend to fall under the rule of reason. In addition to various agreements, antitrust also regulates certain unilateral conduct, which is generally conduct that is done to exclude competitors. Um, that's also called monopolization in some sense. And almost all unilateral conduct is also analyzed under the rule of reason. Some examples of that, for example, are um, various refusals to deal where you and a competitor may have had, a, for example, a pre-existing relationship and potentially to harm their business the, if you cut them off. And that may be subject to antitrust scrutiny. Yeah, and I think you mentioned uh, when we were talking before that even, for example, suing to keep a competitor out of a market may constitute an antitrust issue. Yeah, so we've seen lots of what are called sham patent litigations as an example, where out of fear of potentially infringing a patent, and even if you don't necessarily think you'll win the lawsuit, you can, a company may file lawsuits to try to exclude the competitor. And that raises, potentially raises antitrust issues as well. Fascinating. Now, the antitrust division at the U.S. Department of Justice for years have been less, less willing than the criminal division to give credit for compliance programs. That's been changing recently, though. Um, what should compliance programs inspect, expect in terms of credit for their efforts, and should they approach their antitrust compliance efforts any differently in this new environment? Yeah, so to start with a bit of historical background, since 1993, the U.S. Antitrust Division has what's called the leniency program, where a company can admit to wrongdoing in, in exchange for telling the Department of Justice about this. That company will not be prosecuted and will have reduced civil liability. The important caveat, though, is that only the first company can seek leniency for a given conspiracy. So 
So if you're the second one in the door, you really don't get anything generally. Um, until 2015, the Department of Justice viewed compliance as a compliance program as weak if a company was still committing antitrust violations and did not seek leniency. And one of the reasons was, in fact, to reduce, prevent any disincentives to the leniency program. Um, in 2015, that changed a bit where the Department of Justice announced that it would give fine reductions for what are called forward-looking improvements to compliance programs. Um, and then in 2019, this was potentially expanded and said that, quote, an effective compliance program could lead to fine reductions or charging credit, meaning that instead of a guilty plea, a company may be able to get what's called a deferred prosecution agreement or non-prosecution agreement. Now with, those, now, with that, there's the caveat that we haven't really seen any clear examples of credit being given as a result of the 2019 changes yet, um, potentially because one of the example, one of the hallmarks of an effective compliance program is that a company actually report. If a company had already reported, then it would have been a leniency applicant probably. And in general, the benefits of leniency would outweigh the benefits of getting the, the potential credit under the 2019 changes anyway. For compliance programs, I think this is really a case where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of the cure and companies should introduce institute robust compliance programs with the goal of actually trying to prevent conduct or catch conduct rather than just seeking charging credit afterwards. Now, notably, when it comes to antitrust, there's been a, a lot of actions lately related to hiring practices. Can you give us an overview of what's going on and what should compliance teams be on the lookout for? Sure. So we've really seen three types of agreements on hiring practices that have been subject to scrutiny. The first are called no poach agreements, which are when competitors will agree either to not solicit each other's employees or agree to not hire entirely. Um, in the past few years, we've seen a lot of scrutiny in that area. We've seen numerous indictments coming down the pipeline in the past few years, and the first trial is scheduled to happen soon. Um, a lot of these have been in the healthcare space, so that's probably just where cases have been found. In general, most courts have found that naked agreements on hiring practices have been per se illegal, as mentioned, which is why they're sub potentially subject to criminal penalty. Um, we haven't seen any appellate decisions testing that theory yet, though, so we'll keep an eye out for that. Um, a lot of the times you'll also see agreements on poaching that are part of a legitimate business transaction. As an example, if a competitor buys part of a competitor's business, then it makes sense that they would actually want to retain the employees. Those would probably be analyzed under the rule of reason. And then we've all, in addition to agreements on poaching, we've also seen, seen agreements on, non on wages as a whole, and those have generally been treated as per se illegal with even more frequency. Finally, the Department of Justice has recently highlighted that it may take action against non-compete agreements, which is interesting because those are vertical restraints, really, it's just between the hiree and the hirer. So that's an interest that may mark the change that we'll keep track of. And we've seen, in addition to criminal cases, some, act, some very large civil litigations about this. Uh, so one of the most notable was the high-tech employee antitrust litigation in the Northern District of California, which had alleged that numerous Silicon Valley tech companies, such as Lucasfilm and Adobe, had all agreed to not cold call each other's employees to get them to move companies. And this ultimately resulted in a settlement worth over $400 million for the class. And one thing I would like to note about that case is that the definition of competitors in employment context is actually broader than it would be in many other contexts. 
So you don't normally think of Lucasfilm and Adobe as competing in their product lines, but they still compete for the same employees potentially. Yeah, with well, the underlying use of technology so widespread these days, um, it's definitely one of those things where you can see how some two companies who aren't competitors would be competing for the same pool of talent. Now, what are some of the other emerging areas of enforcement in the antitrust arena that compliance teams should be on the lookout for? So, in addition to some of the issues that we flag related to hiring, for example, um, we've seen, in general, a lot of the enforcers have really developed a more sophisticated economics and understanding in the past few decades. So, various issues that hadn't really been acknowledged before have really started to come up to the forefront. So, for one that one example is what's called monopsony theory, which is when an entity becomes so large that it actually can charge or pay prices for various inputs that are so low that it, they harm the market. As an example, in 2021, the Department of Justice sued to stop the Penguin House, Simon & Schuster book publishing merger because they argued that that joint entity would be able to pay authors so much less than would otherwise be comp the competitive rate. In addition to that, we've also seen for years, some industries having particularly focused. One that we've seen in the past few years has really been the tech space. So you see the huge cases that have been brought against Google and Facebook as examples. In addition, healthcare has been a focus for as long as I've been practicing. Um, so that's been in the pharmaceutical space. And as I mentioned about the no poaching cases, a lot of healthcare providers have been subject to scrutiny. We've also seen a continued growth in private litigation. The one notable trend has been that certain competitors or large customers that years ago rarely brought suit have been doing it with significantly more frequency of late. Um, so, for example, in the healthcare space, you've seen a lot of the big insurers such as United Healthcare filing suit. And one last thing that I would like to flag is that we've seen a really big growth of transnational enforcement. If you go back, say, a decade, really the main agencies that you would have to be concerned about would be in the U.S. and the EU. But we've really seen countries like China, Korea, Japan, and Brazil develop their own regimes that have been very robust. Um, and also post-Brexit, the U.K. has become significantly more act potentially significantly more active as well. Well, and we've seen transnational prosecutions increasing in other areas as well. Now, when it comes to antitrust, uh, organizations need to think not only horizontally about interactions with competitors, but also vertically. Um, what are the key issues currently with vertical arrangements? So going back a bit, for almost a century in the United States, what was called resale price maintenance was treated as per se legal. And that was if a manufacturer said to its suppliers that you, they had to charge a certain price or they had to charge above a certain price. In the early 90s, the Supreme Court reversed that precedent because they acknowledged that there are legitimate reasons that a company may impose these restraints. So, for example, it could want to guarantee that its distributors try to actually promote a given product as opposed to just have it in stock but kind of ignore it, or that they actually want to offer the maintenance or support that the customers may desire. Um, I would like to flag that some states have still treated it as a, per se illegal, so you have to be aware of the state regimes as well in that space. But in general, on the U.S. federal level, that case kind of embodies the larger trend to generally treat vertical restraints as subject to the rule of reason. So there are some areas that raise significant um, complications, I'll say. So one that we've seen a lot is in the franchise space, because in addition to this 
competition between the various franchisees and among other franchises. So McDonald's franchises compete with each other, but they also compete with Burger King, for example. So then one of the questions is, we've seen this in the no poach space, for example, if various franchisees have a no poach agreement in their contract, should that be treated as per se illegal or some subject to some other regime? And we've really seen big splits among different courts on that question. Um, some have treated that franchise no poaches as per se illegal, while others have subjected, made it subject to the rule of reason or something in between. And then one last issue that we've seen in the vertical space lot that gets a lot of scrutiny is what's called exclusive contracts, where you either agree to only purchase from a given supplier or only sell to given producers or anything along those lines. Um, those are generally viewed as potentially problematic if they will foreclose enough of the market for either the input or the output from your competitor. So we've seen some examples in say the healthcare space where certain inputs to manufacturing of pharmaceuticals have been completely foreclosed from competitors via exclusive contracts and courts have struck those down with some frequency. Well, it's a very complex picture and uh, frankly, you now have me revisiting my McDonald's combo meal and thinking maybe it's better to get the Big Mac from McDonald's, the fries from Wendy's, and the Coke from Burger King in order to avoid any problems. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us both here and in the chapter Federal Antitrust Law Risks 2022 in the Complete Compliance and Ethics Manual. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.